thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. Stripping down science. The Naked Scientists. Hello and welcome to a very special edition of The Naked Scientists, which comes to you this week from two cities in two countries in two continents and in two hemispheres. It's all the twos. And that's because we're in Cambridge, England. That's where Kat Arney and Helen Scales are. Hello to both of you. Hello. Hello. And I'm Chris Smith, and I'm in Johannesburg in South Africa, and we'll be finding out why shortly. Now, on this week's show, which has a distinctly spacey flavour, we'll also be finding out how scientists have for the first time cloned primate cells. So move over, Dolly the Sheep, and welcome to Monty the Monkey. Also, how chocolate might have ended up on the menu as a byproduct of beer making. And we'll also be hearing why wearing the wrong-sized shoes could cost you more than just a blister. That's all on the way. Also this week, we are exploring the realms of deep space with Brian Schmidt. He's here to explain how he and his colleagues have discovered that the universe is getting bigger. And the older it gets, the faster it grows, like us all, I guess. Anyway, we'll also be getting the lowdown on the most powerful telescope in the Southern Hemisphere, and it's over in South Africa, where Chris is. It's powerful enough to spot a candle flame flickering on the moon. And we're joined by Case Racejake, who will be telling us how it works. Also on the way, how researchers have spotted a large system of planets, five of them, orbiting a distant star, and how the human body copes with the demands of spaceflight. Plus, in a rather special kitchen science this week, we'll be finding out whether the object that landed on one of our listeners was indeed from outer space. I heard this ping and clatter, and I looked round, and I thought, I know what that must be, because it can't be anything else. A meteorite. Find out whether Colin really was hit by something extraterrestrial later in the show. Thank you, Helen. So if you'd like to ask us any questions about space science, do get in touch. Chris at thenakedscientist.com. The Naked Scientist podcast, powered by UK Fast, the UK's best hosting provider, on the web at ukfast.net. Well, let's kick off, as we always do, with a look at some of this week's top science stories. And this is no exception, because scientists have, for the first time, managed to clone cells from a monkey, a primate. Now, the the furthest that scientists had got along the cloning pathway up until now was, of course, animals like Dolly the sheep. They'd also cloned cows and horses. In fact, one one application of cloning was cloning stallions that had been gelded, because if they wanted to breed from a gelding, there's no way once it's been gelded. So if you clone it and get your stallion-ish behaviour back again, then you can breed from that horse. But uh, it's really frustrated scientists that they haven't been able to make the techniques that have worked with these other animals work in primates. But now they have. And Shukrat Mitalipov, who is a researcher at Oregon University over in America, together with his group of colleagues, have managed to make it work. And why they think that this has worked in this case is because they have made the procedure much gentler on the way in which they do the techniques. Now, what they do is they collected the nucleus the genetic material from the skin, a cell in the skin of a nine-year-old male monkey, and they then collected eggs from 14 donor female monkeys. They removed the genetic material from the female monkey eggs and then then inserted the nucleus, the genetic material, from the male monkey, and in 0.7% of the cells in which they did this, having given them a chemical kickstart, they were able to trigger cell 
division. In other words, the embryo started to develop into what would become a fetus. At this stage, they let it develop into an early cell embryo called a blastocyst, and from there, they were able to get something called early embryonic stem cells. And by checking the identity of these cells, they've now proved they really are clones. Now, why this is important is that we think that it has both research and health implications. In terms of health, if you can make stem cells that uh, are genetically compatible with you, this means that you could potentially use them to generate new organs and tissues to combat the effects of ageing or disease. But also Ian Wilmot, the guy who cloned Dolly the sheep, has also uh, pointed out that this has major research influences and, and emphases as well because if you can make cells which are from people who have certain genetic diseases, you can study how the cells from those people start off healthy and then contribute to the disease process, which up until now has been very, very difficult because, of course, we've only managed to get cells previously from people who already have the disease and some of the changes that contribute to that process may have already happened. So this is a very powerful tool and it's been published this week in the journal Nature. It certainly is interesting. Also this week, um, Ian Wilmot was saying that he's probably not going to do any of that nuclear transfer stuff anymore because there's a, a new technique on the way and hopefully we'll be exploring that in another show. But anyway, on a slightly icky turn of events, um, researchers in the US have discovered that the curse, women's monthly curse, could actually be a blessing in disguise. Also talking about stem cells, they found that menstrual blood could potentially be a source of stem cells. And uh, so every month, um, new blood vessels grow in the womb and they prepare for any potential fertilised eggs that might be popping in there. And if a woman doesn't become pregnant, then obviously this lining shed and that's your period. And now writing in the Journal of Translational Medicine, the researchers have showed that this blood actually contains stem cells that you can grow in the lab, and they multiply up to 70 times, dividing really fast once every 20 hours. Now, that's fast for cells. And this is much faster than other types of stem cells, such as those from the umbilical cord or bone marrow. And they've called these cells endometrial regenerative cells and showed that they can be coaxed into at least nine different fates. So they can become heart cells, liver cells, lung cells, and so on. And just five millilitres of menstrual blood from a healthy woman could actually provide beating heart cells after two weeks in the lab. Now, the researchers think that these cells could be grown on a really large scale, which also might provide an alternative to using things like bone marrow or umbilical cord blood. And uh, although the technology is still at quite an early stage, always cashing in, a company in the States is offering to freeze and store your menstrual blood rather nicely uh, in case it does become a viable treatment in the future. Now, however, it's not clear if these cells could just be uh, manipulated to treat men or if they're just for the girls that have uh, provided them. Who knows? Gosh, sounds good. Well, anyway, any, any kind of progress in that field sounds like excellent news indeed. I'm going to change topic completely uh, because I have a story about chocolate. Still Hooray! Kind of, still kind of related to periods, though. Kind of girly, you mean? Yeah. <laughs> I guess so, yes, you're right. Anyway, but it, uh, it turns out that um, chocolate might actually have been discovered by accident as a byproduct of the beer-making process. And what's more, new, ev- new evidence suggests that it's been around for much longer than we thought, possibly 500 years longer than we used to think, which makes chocolate perhaps 3,000 years old. It was actually the Central American Indians who first invented chocolate, and it now seems that they might have stumbled across this delicious treat only after they'd been making beer for a couple of hundred years from the same plant that chocolate made of, which is called cacao. 
Now, in this chocolatey study, researchers from several American universities have extracted and identified residues of cacao from the pores of fragments of ancient pottery found in Honduras that date back to the second millennium BC. Now, today we make chocolate from the fermented seed pods of cacao, and it was the telltale traces of a compound found in cacao called theobromine that was found in these shards of pottery. And before they made chocolate, um, people used to use cacao to breed uh, to brew a type of beer called chica. I think that's how you say it, um, which is still drunk today by tribes in South America. Um, now, ancient uh, beer makers fermented the cacao seed pods and used the pulp to make the beer from them and then threw away the seeds, which is what we now make chocolate out of today. And it's the type of pottery container that these ancient cacao residues were found in that um, basically gives away the fact that it was made um, into beer and not into chocolate because it wasn't till another 300 years that people started using the discarded fermented seed pods to make a frothy al- non-alcoholic drink um, that became really highly prized even though it probably tasted dreadfully bitter. It was definitely the forerunner to our modern day chocolate which we've, we make much sweeter. But it was served in weddings and births and things like that which I think is lovely, the idea of drinking drinking chocolate uh, on special occasions. Mm. So you didn't have any drinking chocolate at your wedding, Helen? Do you know, I don't think we did. We did have chocolate cake. Well, <laughs> one of the layers of the cake was chocolate, but, but not to drink, though. Close. <laughs> now, there's a number of wars going on around the world at the moment, and one of the consequences of war is that people lose limbs. And whilst we're pretty good at producing prostheses to combat the loss of a lower limb, a leg, we're not very good at producing functional replacements for arms because, of course, we do so much with arms. We have fingers and thumbs, we grip things, open doors, do up clothes, do up buttons. And to lose an arm is a tragedy and a real problem for people who have to undergo that because the replacements, the prostheses we have, are just not up to scratch. And so there's a group of researchers who are working at the Rehab Institute in Chicago. Uh, They're led by Todd Quicken. And they've come up with a very clever way of perhaps combating the problem of poor prostheses. Now, what they've got is a technique called targeted muscle re-innovation. Very clever. If you imagine when an arm has been severed from the body, then there's the arm stump, and the nerves that used to supply the arm are still there in the stump. They just don't go anywhere. So what this group of researchers have done is to take the muscles from the chest wall that would normally have helped to stabilise the shoulder joint when it had the weight of an arm attached to it. They've taken away the nerves from the chest wall that would normally supply those muscles, and they've rerouted the nerves that would have supplied the arm into these muscles from the chest. And if you let the patient recover for four to six months after this implantation surgery, when they start trying to think about moving their arm, these muscles in the chest begin to respond instead, and they'll respond to you thinking about moving what would have been your fingers or your thumb. And what the researchers then started doing was recording the pattern of nerve activity from those muscles and using it to move the motors in a a servo-assisted prosthesis, so an arm. And this was able to produce a huge leap forward in how good you could actually make these prostheses because you could make the movements much more accurate. But now they're working on phase two of this, which is proposed to make it even better. And this is really clever. What they've started doing is recording the precise pattern of activity in the muscles in the chest wall that they've re-innovated with their technique. And by monitoring and asking the patient, now I want you to imagine that you are, say, closing your fingers into a fist or bringing your, your thumb and forefinger together to pick up a pen, by monitoring the precise pattern of activity in these muscles in the chest wall, they can write computer programs which will monitor the activity in the muscles and then give you very, very precise, with 95% accuracy, ac- identification of 16 movements that a patient would want to make with their prosthesis. And at the moment, it's a little bit slow, so the time it takes the computer to work out what the patient wants to do and then map it onto the prosthesis is a little bit slow. But they're pretty confident that within two years, they'll have something which is almost as good as 
real time, so almost instant recognition of what the patient's intentions are and mirroring that with the behaviour of a very lifelike movement in a prosthetic prosthetic limb. That sounds absolutely fantastic. Um, Slightly on the same theme, I mean, you may think that the only health consequence of wearing badly fitting shoes could just be a few blisters or maybe even a twisted ankle. But researchers at the University of Dundee have shown that more than 6 out of 10 people with diabetes are walking around in the wrong size shoes. And this potentially leaves them vulnerable to serious foot problems that could even lead to having their feet amputated. So this is actually quite serious. Now, the research is particularly timely, as it was World Diabetes Day this week on the 14th of November. And in fact, the World Health Organisation has said that the number of people suffering from diabetes could double to 366 million by the year 2030. And that also 80% of diabetic foot amputations could be prevented. Now, the researchers in Dundee studied 100 people with diabetes, and they had their feet examined and measured while they were sitting down and standing up. And the team found that around two-thirds of the patients were wearing the wrong size shoes. Um, Mostly, uh, 45%, for example, were wearing the wrong width fitting. Now, this is really important because people with diabetes can have serious problems, for example, with a lack of feeling in their feet. And nearly half the patients in the study had already had problems like ulcers, calluses, bunions and so on. And severe problems can lead to you having to have your foot taken off. And uh, in fact, this can be caused by badly fitting shoes. But Kat, why are people wearing shoes that are the wrong size? Well, this is the thing. They think that people just don't really realise how serious it is and maybe don't know how to fit their shoes properly. And also there's a lot of variation in manufacturing manufacturer's sizes. So the researchers have said that foot problems for diabetics could be reduced by adults being offered proper foot measuring services in shoe shops. So you can measure your feet and see if they actually fit properly like you do when you're a kid. And uh, they'd also like to see manufacturers developing standardised shoe sizes and expanding the range of width fittings and length fittings. So um, that might also, you know, help them out. Sounds good. I do hope they do something on that. I do. Rem- it has been a long time since I've had my feet measured, <laughs> since I was tiny. But um, I'm going to finish off the news for this week with the announcement that we have a new family of dinosaurs that have been discovered. Isn't that great? And this wasn't actually the result of an archaeological dig, but a spring clean, because it was actually the discovery um, of a bone that was sitting on a shelf in the Natural History Museum in London for over 100 years, and no one was really paying any attention to it. It was actually PhD student Mike Taylor who noticed the fossil and immediately realised he'd found something very very unusual. Um, he's an expert in the backbones of sauropods which were actually the biggest group of animals or the group of biggest animals ever to walk the earth including Diplodocus or Diplodocus if you prefer um, and they're recognisable from their enormous bodies huge long long necks and then rather small heads at the end of it. Now this new dinosaur has been named Xenoposeidon which apparently translates as alien sauropod. It lived around 140 million years ago judging by the size of its backbone and it was probably about the size of an African elephant today. Now, the specimen was originally found in the 1890s by a fossil collector called Philip James Rufford, who found it in the English county of Essex, uh, Sussex. Sorry, um, And at the time, it was briefly described, but it wasn't really thought to be anything particularly important. Now, the reason that paleontologists have now been able to decide that this dinosaur did indeed belong to a whole new family of dinosaurs um, that we've never seen before is because since that discovery 100 years ago, over 100 other sauropods have been named and discovered. So we know loads more about sauropods today than in Rufford's day so that's why this has sort of come to light as a new family but I think it's fantastic and it it does make you wonder though what else might be lurking down in the mysterious vaults of the Natural History Museum. I reckon they've got Barney in there. When you first said that um, Helen when you first said that uh, they discovered this new family of dinosaurs I thought for a minute someone had managed to stumble upon my extended relatives. (laughs) I hope they're listening. (laughs) 
Yeah, I definitely think they've got Barney down in the Natural History Museum. Anyway, before you finish the news, I want to know, Chris, why are you actually in South Africa? Will you tell us? Well, I couldn't stand the sight of you two, uh, oh. and I thought I'd have to get as far away as I could. No, seriously. Um, we're here in South Africa because this week there's going to be a conference which we've been invited very kindly to come and speak at, um, which is all about trying to raise the profile of science here in South Africa and to get journalists talking about science more and put science up the scientific agenda so that the public learn more about it, and this will hopefully turn into more people at university studying science. Um, the major advantage of being here in South Africa is the weather is wonderful. We had a barbecue this afternoon. Shut it's a balmy up. something about 80, it's 80 plus degrees. Um, and I was rather intrigued when we arrived. They give you a, a card to fill in for immigration, and it's from the South African Revenue Services, SARS for short, and it says uh, the form SARS at your service, which I've been rather worried, but I'm, I'm still well, I'm pleased to report. Excellent. Anyway, it, this week's show is all about space science, and we're going to have a focus on South Africa, but if you have any questions about space science or anything uh, you'd like us to discuss in this week's show, then do get in touch with Chris at thenakedscientist.com. Laying the facts bare, The Naked Scientists. You are listening to The Naked Scientists with Chris Smith in South Africa and Helen Scales and me, Kat, in the studio. Now, in the news last week was the story of an extraordinary discovery around what, essentially, is a very boring star. Now, the star is called 55 Cancri. It's 41 light years away, found in the constellation Cancer, and it seems to be very similar to our sun. Well, to get the full story, earlier this week, Ben Valsler met up with Professor Jeff Marcy, who's from the University at Berkeley, to find out. Way back in 1989, my team began taking Doppler shift measurements of this rather obscure sun-like star, 55 Cancri. Every year we would take a few more Doppler measurements, and we didn't see anything for quite a few years. And then around 1996, we noticed that the star was wobbling, and we quickly realized that it was wobbling because a planet uh, was pulling on the star with an orbital period of about 14 days. We were delighted, but then we got worried because over the next few years, the star didn't behave as if it had just this planet around it. It, it was wobbling for other reasons that we didn't understand. And soon we realized that there was a second planet. And by the late 90s, we actually discovered yet a third planet. And now, here in 2007, we can see the effects of yet a fourth and even now a fifth planet. And what's remarkable in hindsight is to notice that over 18 years ago, we began observing a star with no sense, no knowledge that there were any planets at all. And it's turned out to be a gold mine, this star. So how do you go about spotting a planet when it's so far away that you can't actually see any light reflected off the planet? The sad truth is that even with the Hubble Space Telescope, you can point it at a nearby star and any planets that might be orbiting that star would be lost in the glare of the host star. So we use a trick. The idea is to watch the star, not the planet, and we look to see if a star is stationary, which, as Newton said, it would stay unless it's acted upon by an outside force. And in fact, any star orbited by a planet will feel the gravitational tug by the planet acting on the star, causing the star to wobble. So we watch stars to see if they're stationary or if they move, and we do that by measuring the Doppler effect, the effect that all of us are familiar with when you hear a train whistle go by you, the pitch changes, and so it is with starlight. The frequency of the light waves changes as a star wobbles in space, and we measure that and thereby detect the planets. So you're looking for a signature of a planet rather than the planet itself. But how do you tease out and tell which wobbles are caused by which planets? 
Well, of course, a star that's orbited by just one planet, the simplest case, will execute a small little circular motion as the star is yanked on by the planet. If there are two planets there, you'll see the star execute a curly Q pattern, a, a sort of circular motion superimposed on a larger circular motion. And so we have to pull the planets apart one by one from the motion of the star, and eventually we're able to detect all five planets, not unlike your ear hearing five notes on the piano, uh, eventually, of course, you can tell that there's not just one or two notes, but a full five notes. And what is special about the star 55 Cancri? What's lovely about 55 Cancri is that it's a sun-like star, has nearly the same mass as the sun, nearly the same age, about five billion years, and nearly the same chemical composition. In fact, 55 Cancri is a little richer in the heavy elements like uh, oxygen, silicon, and iron. So it's a sun-like star, and of course what's wonderful about our solar system is that there are eight major planets orbiting it, and now we have 55 Cancri with its five planets that we've so far been able to detect, and it may well be that there are smaller planets orbiting 55 Cancri, Earth-like planets, that our technology can't at the present detect at all. Four of the five planets around 55 Cancri are what we would think of as being gas giants. So why do you think that there's a likelihood that we'll find rocky or Earth-like planets? It's amazing that this 55 Cancri system, four gas giants, the innermost planet, the fifth one, being smaller, about 13 Earth masses. But there's a gap between planets four and five, a large gap, within which we detect nothing at all. And without the ability to detect Earth's, it could well be that there are rocky planets in there, Mars, Venus-like, or Earth-like planets. They may, in fact, be warmed up to nearly lukewarm temperatures with a little greenhouse effect added in. And so that gap offers an opportunity for us to now go with next-generation equipment and try to detect any Earth-like planets that may be there. So what is the next step for you? Well, there are several exciting next steps. The Europeans and Americans are trying to work together on a spectacular new uh, telescope called Darwin slash TPF, the Terrestrial Planet Finder. And the idea of Darwin and TPF is to take the first pictures of an Earth-like planet. I think it would be marvelous someday to open up the newspaper and see above the fold a, a yellow dot, the host star, uh, with a small pale blue dot orbiting that yellow star. And for the first time, we would know that there are other Earths out there in the universe. Absolutely fascinating stuff. That was Professor Jeff Marcy chatting to Ben on a recent visit to the Institute of Astronomy here at Cambridge University. It's quite interesting, Kat, that he was saying that star, 55 Cancri, is rather like the sun. You know what the hottest part of the sun is? Uh, page three. Ba-boom, you got it in one. This is The Naked Scientist, of course. It's Dr Chris, Dr Kat and Dr Helen. We're talking space science this week, and in a moment we'll be finding out more about what you can see with the most powerful telescope on Earth, potentially. It's going to be sighted in the Southern Hemisphere, and also how the human body responds to trips into space. If you'd like to ask us any questions, that kind of thing, chris at thenakedscientist.com. First, though, we've got an email here from Lauren who says, Hi, I'm a nursing student from the US. I love your show. Thanks very much, Lauren. And she asks, if the sun were to blink out one day, how long do you estimate life could be sustained on Earth? Chris, you've got any thoughts? It's an excellent question, and I think the answer will surprise you because I would be willing to put money on it being millions, if not billions, of years. And the reason I say that is that there was an answer to this question sort of provided not far away from where I am here in South Africa in a gold mine down near Johannesburg. 
And about a year ago, Lisa Pratt, who's a researcher from the US, published a paper in the journal Science where she and her team had isolated some bacteria from deep three kilometres underground down a mine shaft and water that was accompanying these bacteria coming out of a hole in the side of this mine shaft was analysed and found to be between 16 and 40 million years old. In other words, that water had been cut off from the rest of the earth for, for up to 40 million years. And when they cultured it, it was thriving with bacteria. So those bacteria themselves must also have been cut off from the rest of the world. So what were they eating in water three kilometres underground in temperatures of 70 degrees C? Well, analysis of how these bacteria survive suggests that what they're actually doing is living off radiation, which is coming out of the rocks. What happens is that there's a lot of uranium in the rock. The uranium spits out alpha particles. This is a helium nucleus. The alpha particle is radioactive and it hits water molecules and when it hits the water molecule it breaks it up into what's called a hydroxyl radical and the hydroxyl radical can jump into the nearby iron pyrites, that's fool's gold, which is in the rock and it breaks up the iron and the sulphur, which is iron sulphide, and turns it into a form of sulphur that these bacteria can metabolise and as a result these bacteria can grow and then feed other bacteria which are also present in there. So my guess is that if the sun suddenly went out, although all life that's dependent on the sun would cease to exist or would probably die pretty fast, there will almost certainly be bacteria like these which can survive on other sources of energy such as radiation or those that survive around hydrothermal vents at the bottom of the sea. But you reckon we'd be stuffed? I think we'd probably be stuffed. But one little comfort is that in fact the light that's coming out of the sun is already at least one million years old by the time it gets to us because it's been bounced around like a pinball inside the sun before it escapes so even if the sun's nuclear reactor went off for some reason tomorrow you'd still have a million years worth of light stored up inside excellent you are listening to the naked scientists uh we're going to start talking about more in-depth space stuff and coming up we have case race jake talking about his extremely large telescope if you have any questions about science technology of space and all that chris at thenakedscientists.com Fancy listening to the naked scientists in your bed, (laughs) on your way to work, or even at work? Mm -hmm. Why not subscribe to our podcast? For more information, visit nakedscientist.com forward slash podcast. It is The Naked Scientist with Dr Chris Smith, with Dr Katani and Dr Helen Scales. And this week we're talking space science. And I'm down here in Johannesburg, South Africa, joining you live from the Southern Hemisphere, where scientists are putting together what could, could amount to a very, very powerful telescope indeed. And to tell me more about it is Case Rayshjake. He's from the South African Astronomical Observatory and is going to be part of SALT, the South African Large Telescope Array. So, so Case, what actually is this telescope and how will it work? Well, it's... Uh it's a design very similar to one that's been built in Texas called the Hobby Ebley Telescope, which we're using as a prototype. And, of course, we have to make certain changes in design and so on. But it's now been completed. Um, it, it was uh, first, the groundbreaking was in 2000, the 1st of September, and on the 1st of September in 2005 we had the first images, so first light. We've had a couple of teething problems, but the telescope is functioning well. It is, of course, an enormous uh, undertaking to build such a complex uh, piece of machinery. Um, many countries didn't believe we were capable of doing it, but we've proved them wrong. We've actually built a better telescope than the Americans have, and we've got lots of partners from all over the world to join us in this vast project. So when you say telescope, <coughs> is this a telescope in the Isaac Newton Galileo sense of the word, or is this something different? No, it's very, very different. Uh, this telescope um, is it's what they call the Arecibo principle. The primary mirror stays fixed in 
altitude, it can rotate an azimuth. So we can see 70% of the sky for 20% of the cost. And that makes it for us uh, a great compromise in a developing country. Okay, so light is focused with a mirror onto a detector. Onto a detector. How big is that mirror? That mirror is 11 meters across. Oh, well, that's that's huge. That's huge. And the reason why it's not the largest single telescope in the world is quite simply that we don't always use all of that surface. As the telescope is parked, pointing at the object you want to look at, there's a tracker beam at the top that moves across that collects the light. And, of course, at some stages you're not looking exactly down the middle. You look slightly towards the side, which means you're probably looking at an eight or nine meter telescope. So worst case scenario, it's a seven telemeter telescope, seven meter telescope. Best case scenario, about ten and a half. The published literature says you could see a candle flickering on the moon's surface with yeah. this, but obviously you don't want to look at the moon's surface with it. You want to do other things. What, what, what are you going to achieve with it? Well, it's because it's got nearly eighty square meters of light collecting surface. You can, it's, it's, which is an enormous amount. You can, in fact, do a lot of. Uh, things that take very short periods of time. So you can do a lot of time series analysis, rapidly rotating binary stars. Um, it's also designed um, to pick up planets around distant stars. We heard about that earlier on. SALT is ideally designed to do that. Um, and various other things. It, it's, with that sort of capacity, it can look back very, very far into the, into the universe. Why do we need another ground-based telescope when we've got things like the Spitzer Space Telescope looking in the infrared, we've got the Hubble Space Telescope on its last legs, admittedly, but then the NASA have got mm. the James Webb planned yeah. for 2013. So why do we need ground-based? Because isn't there all kinds of problems with the atmosphere corrupting the image? Well, <clears throat> yes, there is. But, of course, you still need large ground-based telescopes to do the high... It's a lot of the equipment that's re- required to analyse the light it needs to be massive. It's tons of stuff and you can't put that in a space uh, telescope. And quite often nowadays you'll find that telescopes like Keck and VLT in South America, now SALT as well, um, they will be using and collaborating with the space telescopes to do more detailed work. Um, Some telescopes, not SALT, can do what we call adaptive optics, where they can actually remove, physically remove the effects of the atmosphere. So, for example, VLT in South America is now actually producing better images than Hubble, even though it's on Earth. So these are problems that's developing technology. Is it fully functional, or is, you, is there still a sort of work-up going on well, to get it up to scratch? We have found that we need, there needs to be an overlap, substantial overlap between engineering and science. In America, they stopped this engineering and started the science, and they've had problems. We're trying to avoid that, and we've got a sort of a much longer lead in time to doing science. But it is doing science, it's producing science, and it's already produced some really good results. I've got an email here, which is from uh, Johan Marsu, who says, I love your show. I listen to it while I'm in my cell culture hood. So I'm guessing he's a cell biologist. I've got a question about the Big Bang. Recently I was told we could see light from the Big Bang. So how is this possible? Wouldn't the light from billions of years ago, given the universe is about 13 plus billion years old, be absorbed and scattered all over the place by now? Well, no. um, It is possible to look back um, quite a long way, but you cannot look back to the Big Bang. Uh, the world was, or the universe was opaque. Uh, it was transparent to neutrinos, but not to light. Uh, that only came about, at, at best, 300,000 years after the Big Bang. Uh, at present, we can probably look back about a billion years and do science there. So why is that light still visible? Because what, what, uh, what he's asking is, why hasn't the light become so spread out that we just can't see it? 
Well, it's, uh, I don't know, it's, uh, we can look back supernova at huge redshifts and the light is not being scattered or dispersed. This is a paper by Joe Silkreis and they, they, it's, you can see the supernova very, very long way back. Thanks, Case. So if you have any questions for us on uh, anything to do with space science, you heard there from Case Raystake. He's, he's here at, uh, with me in Johannesburg uh, in South Africa and you can get in touch with us. Chris at thenakedscientist.com. Thanks, Chris. Now, you may think when you watch something like Star Trek, you know, they're all zipping around space and they're little spaceships and it's all fine, travelling to other dimensions, all of that. But the reality is very different and space travel has a lot of effects on our bodies. And to tell us more about this is Kevin Fong and he's a space physiologist based at University College London. So, Kevin, what sort of things actually happen to our bodies when we're travelling in space? Uh, well, I mean, it's much more of a an insult to the body than, than people ordinarily think. I mean, going into space is an expedition like, like any expedition, like going to Everest or going to the South Pole. Uh, and, and the two things about space are really radiation and uh, the absence of, of gravitational loading, uh, microgravity. Uh, and because of that, so your, your bones waste, your, your muscles waste, your, your heart, which itself is, is essentially a muscle pump uh, itself, uh, undergoes atrophy. Uh, you have problems with your sense of balance and coordination. About seven out of ten astronauts spend the first couple of days feeling like they want to throw up or throwing up. So, you know, it's not pleasant, and, and, and you really genuinely come back feeling like you've been through a pretty tough expedition at the end. And are there any things that astronauts can do to kind of get over this? I mean... What sort of what sort of things do they do at the moment? Well, uh, so they they partially solve the problem um, of the wasting of muscle and bone and the deconditioning of, of your cardiovascular system uh, uh, by just simply doing exercise. I mean, so they have little treadmills. They, up in, they up have in they have little treadmills that they strap themselves to with little bungee cords, uh, uh, and they do that for a couple of hours, two or three hours a day on on space station missions, uh, and that that provide some partial protection it doesn't do anything for your your inner ear so your sense of balance and coordination um uh, and it only partially protects you uh, from, from the effects I, I just mentioned and what you mentioned radiation as well how much of a problem is is that well it, it, in most of our current missions uh so the stuff that happens on space shuttle and international space station and the soyuz uh vehicles uh, it's not that big of a problem mainly because that all occurs well within the, the protective limits of, of the uh, Earth's magnetic field. So, so uh, at the moment, you know, we, we've had astronauts. Uh, the longest mission so far is 438 days, uh, uh, without any severe side effects from that. So I, I think in the future, uh, with longer missions going to the moon, going to Mars, to wherever, it may be more of a problem. So at the moment, the sort of limiting factor on space travel really is how our bodies can cope with it rather than the technology, do you think? Oh, I, you know, very much so. I mean, that's the thing about human exploration of space. You know, humans are by far and away the most versatile and adaptable uh, versatile and adaptable research tools that we have uh, today. I mean, that's, that's why we do so much exploring by, with humans uh, on on the Earth. But they're also the most fragile link in the chain. So, yeah, uh, human biology is really the thing that makes it difficult. I mean, we've been, we've been throwing stuff at Mars and hitting it, well, hitting it about one in every three times for, since about the mid-1970s. So, you know, the, the thing that stopped us doing it with people is... is 
human biology. And do you think if we're going to go on sort of super long trips, this stuff of sci-fi, would we have to have babies in space? Do you think that's possible? <laughs> well, well the, 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 the longest missions that are on the chart at the moment look out to something like the mid-2030s. And they talk about going to Mars and having research, human research outposts on Mars. There's also a couple of things that, talk, that, that also sound pretty sci-fi that talk about putting people onto to asteroids, uh, which is, is easier than, than you would, you would ordinarily <laughs> Doesn't imagine. Doesn't sound easy to me. <laughs> um, in the far-flung future, given the limits of the laws of physics as we know them, get going any, you know, going beyond our solar system and, and further, I, I think then you're talking about needing to have some sort of sci-fi type space colony deal, but that's kind of beyond any immediate technology horizon as far as I can see. We've just had a question in uh, on the phones from Andy and he wants to know, is the artificial gravity you see on Star Trek possible? So do you think that we could have some kind of artificial gravity system that would get over these effects? So, I mean, that, that's a fascinating... Well, the whole of gravity is a fascinating subject. I, it's such a simply observed phenomenon. You know, you do it every day when you drop the dishes. But, uh, you watch it every day in, in action. And for something that's so ubiquitous in our experience it's so poorly understood uh, and I guess the answer to that question is uh, we're, we're as far as I can see in anything away from a machine that you sort of press an on button and suddenly hey presto you've got gravity however you can produce gravitational loading just simply by uh, spinning uh, a vehicle up uh, having a rotating vehicle and, and you know this is not a new idea uh, Herman Oberth was uh, thinking about it in 1923 at the, at the onset of people thinking about rocketry. So so artificial gravity and some of the stuff that I've been working on in Houston with Johnson Space Center, which involves just rotating vehicles, is really nothing more than that trick you pull off when you have a bucket full of water on the end of a rope and you spin it around your head and the water stays in the bucket. So, so I, I very much think that the future of space exploration will include at some point that sort of vehicle, a rotating vehicle. Like in Space Odyssey. I think, Chris, did you have a question for, uh, for Kevin? Yeah, hi, Kevin. Um, I'm just wondering, because it just occurred to me as you were talking, about body clocks and things. Because when an astronaut goes into space, they're obviously orbiting the Earth faster than the Earth is turning, usually. So what does that do to their body clock? Because we normally rely on the sun and the night to set our body clock so we don't get jet-lagged. No, that, that's quite right. Circadian rhythms are really tough. In fact, my very good friend Dan Tanny is on Expedition 16, which is flying at the moment. And uh, uh, in the days just before he launched, uh, we were talking to him. And first of all, they have to shift them. So space station runs on Greenwich Mean Time. Uh, so they have to shift them uh, to the day of the launch so that they're actually waking up and going to sleep at the right time. I mean, you don't want to have a crew who've just been fired at 17,000 miles an hour into low Earth orbit feeling a bit sleepy because they're on the wrong side of the day. Um, and then once they get up there, they get 90-minute light-dark cycles. They, 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 uh, they see the sun uh, come up and go down over 90 minutes. Uh, and it, it does mess with their sleep patterns. I mean, it, it, the, 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 there are many things that tell your body when it should be awake and going to sleep. And these things are like, they're called zeitgeibers, which literally means time givers. Uh, and these things include when you're eating, what temperature it is. But the most most uh, most potent one is, is light and dark itself. Uh, and on space shuttle and on space station, that, that's happening very, very rapidly. So this basically boils down to the fact that boils down to the result that, that astronauts take 
uh, tranquilizers like they're going out of fashion. They 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 uh, they, they kind of need <laughs> a lot of help going to sleep. Uh, Sounds so, like journalists and, and people who present radio programs uh, from uh, the uh, wrong uh, hemisphere to uh, me. Absolutely. Kevin, thanks very much for joining us. It's been ha- wonderful having you on the program. That's Kevin Fong. He's a space physiologist based at University College London. I'm just going to very briefly bring in Case again here because I've got an email from Jeff Kish who says, is radiation that Kevin was talking about nearly as much of a problem outside the orbit of, say, Mars as it is closer to the Earth? So I'm wondering if deep space vehicles have more or less need of protection from radiation than those that are exploring nearer to the sun? I would say less. Um, eventually you get out into interstellar space and there things will be fairly constant. I mean, the effects there would be minimal and they would stay minimal until you approach another stellar system of some sort. But it's uh, Pioneer 10 and 11 and Viking 1 and 2. They would have some answers if the data is available. Thanks, Case. That's Case Race Jake. Um, he's here with me in Johannesburg in South Africa. And this is The Naked Scientist with Dr. Chris, Dr. Cat, and Dr. Helen. If you have any calls or questions for us, chris at thenakedscientist.com. Laying the facts bare, Ooh. The Naked Scientists. This is The Naked Scientist with Cat Arnie, Chris Smith, and me, Helen Scales. Now, when he's not swanning off to South Africa, and I don't care what time of the morning it is, Chris, but you know, you are in South Africa, and that's great. But when he's not off there, he's also attending parties with award-winning scientists, so life isn't bad. This is how he managed to meet up with Brian Schmidt, one of the winners of the Gruber Cosmology Prize. Brian won a share of uh, the $500,000 prize for his discovery that the universe is expanding as it ages, and the older it gets, the faster it expands. My name is Brian Schmidt, and I'm an astronomer at the Australian National University. When we started in 1994, we were trying to literally weigh the universe by seeing how gravity would tug on the universe as it expands. We knew the universe was expanding since 1929 when Edwin Hubble saw that galaxies were moving away from us. The further away they were, the faster they're moving away from us. And just like points on a balloon, um, if you blow a balloon up, you'll see every point moves away from every other point. And the further away two points are the faster they move apart as you blow that balloon up. And so our idea was to go through and track distances back in time because when we looked at really faint things in the universe, we're actually seeing light which was emitted 4, 8, maybe even 11 or 12 billion years in the past. And so using the fact that light takes while to travel through the cosmos, we're actually able to look back in time and see how fast the universe was expanding 4 billion years ago compared to how fast it's expanding now. And where does, when you do this, where does the light that you're studying come from? In our case, we decided to look at the light of something we call supernovae, which are exploding stars. And the nice thing about these exploding stars is they're very bright, but they're almost all the same brightness. They're like 100-watt light bulbs, except for they have a lot more zeros behind them than 100. They're, they have like 45 or 46 zeros behind them. So by looking at these things, we can measure their distance, and it takes their light 4 billion years to reach us. So how far have you been able to wind back your cosmic clock? So the most distant object discovered to date is about 11 billion years in the past. So we think that is about two and a half billion years after the Big Bang. Uh, This star exploded and its light's been taking the next 11 billion years of the universe to get to us. So that object exploded five billion, six billion years before the Earth was formed. And how does that tell you how the universe is behaving today compared with then? 
we measure how fast the universe is expanding by comparing distances with how much the universe is stretched between the two times. And so we measure stretched by how the wavelength of light changes color. As the universe stretches, it takes light and makes it gradually redder and redder. So we do that in the nearby universe with lots of objects that are tens of millions of light years in distance, or even hundreds. And then we do these ones at billions, and we compare, and we see when we do that that the universe is expanding slower in the past, and it's actually been speeding up over time. So if it is getting faster, why should that be? What's driving it to to expand faster and faster as time goes on? So when we started this experiment, we were expecting to measure how fast the universe uh, was slowing down, to weigh it. So when we found that it was speeding up, it was a big surprise, and you have to invent something new. And the best thing that's ever been invented is something that Albert Einstein himself invented in 1917, which we call the cosmological constant. It is energy that is tied to space itself. And so as the universe expands, more and more space is created. But as that space is created, it has energy associated with it. And it turns out that type of energy pushes on the universe rather than pull on it. And so the acceleration would be caused by 75% of the universe right now being made up of this, this stuff tied to space. So if the universe is getting faster and faster and faster, what, what does that mean in the long term? I mean, the really long term. So it would seem that as the universe uh, is speeding up, it's going to get faster and faster. It really is speeding up so that, oh, in 30 or 40 billion years, so not the near future, light that is getting to us from galaxies that are nearby will actually be sort of stranded by the accelerating universe. The photons of things we can see now will no longer be able to get to us. And so we're going to look out onto a universe that looks empty to us. All the galaxies we see today, and we see literally trillions of them, will disappear from view. And all we'll see are the galaxies that are right around our own, and we'll have all merged into some big super galaxy. But is this a stable thing? Can it just keep getting faster and faster, or will it eventually just snap? Well, that's the big question. We don't know because we don't really understand this dark energy. And so one of the big things that uh, people around the world are trying to do is to see whether or not the dark energy gets created exactly with space. If it's created just like Einstein says and it's tied to space itself, then it goes on forever and ever and the universe just keeps going and it it's just keeps going for, for eons. On the other hand, if it's a little different than that, then it might be that the, the expansion will turn off in the future. Or maybe it'll speed up even more. You don't know. So it's a real question of what this dark energy is and measuring precisely how the universe behaves um, now so that we can extrapolate into the future. What I want to know is why I don't get invited to parties with award-winning astronomers. That was Brian Schmidt from the Australian National University chatting to our very own Chris Smith. Thank you, Helen. Now, last week she answered your question about whether plants can photosynthesise by the light of the moon. But this week's question of the week is a bit less peaceful. Here's Diana O'Carroll. Hello and welcome to Question of the Week with the Naked Scientists, where we'll find out about the worst things to listen to. Hi, this is Jim. I'm in Virginia in USA. And uh, I have a question about loud noises and the damage they might do to hearing. I'd heard that tools like hammers that make short, loud noises are supposed to be more damaging to hearing than something that makes a long, continuous noise. And I'd just kind of like to get some confirmation on that. 
So what's worse, a lot of hammering or a continuous drone like Daniel O'Donnell at 100 decibels? Hello, I'm UJ. I'm an ENT registrar based at Annabrooks Hospital. Whenever you listen to sound, the sound is actually hits the eardrum. And that sound is actually amplified by a series of tiny little bones in the ear called ossicles. These ossicles vibrate and stimulate the fluid within the cochlea, which in turn converts the sound energy into electrical energy, which is perceived as noise by the brain. There are two different types of noise induced hearing loss. You have the more acute stage hearing loss, for example, due to a large explosion, or you may have something more gradual, which is much more common in most people. And this gradual increasing hearing loss is a combination of both the intensity of the sound as well as the duration of the sound. So, for example, someone who shoots guns for a hobby may be exposed to very short bursts of noise but very high intensity, and they may experience a similar degree of hearing loss compared to someone who's exposed in a slightly different environment where the sound intensity is actually much lower but it's much more constant, for example, in the mining industry. There are also additional factors that can influence noise-induced hearing loss. It's not just the combination noise, because people's tolerance to noise varies, and therefore there's some genetic influences in this as well. So the noise-induced hearing loss is not just a simple combination of noise experience, but also the genes that influence your hearing. So there are a number of factors that contribute to getting dodgy ears, but it's true that DIY can be pretty bad for them too. I don't recommend putting a chisel and a bit of 2x4 in them. Anyway, how would you like to fabricate a rainbow when it's not raining? Hi, I'm Lauren calling from Australia and I wanted to ask, how come when you wear polarised lenses can you see strange patterns of light in windows and shiny rainbows in metal? And when we've explored all the different places you can wear sunglasses, it'll be time for a trip to space. Hello, my name's Paul Kingston, calling from the Sunshine Coast, Queensland, Australia. I had a question regarding astronauts. I was wondering whether it would be possible for them if they were stuck in space to project themselves towards Earth and re-enter the atmosphere in only a spacesuit. Could their spacesuits handle re-entry temperatures and how long could this trip possibly take? Ever jumped to the Earth from a great height and worn sunglasses whilst doing so? Let me know about your experiences by emailing questionoftheweek at thenakedscientist.com. That's all for now. Bye-bye. Thanks you to Diana O'Carroll. So it doesn't really matter if you choose a hammer or a chainsaw. Without the proper safety equipment, then you do run the risk of losing your hearing. But why do polarising lenses create rainbow patterns? And could you survive uh, an astronomical jump out of a rocket with just a spacesuit? If you think you know, send us your answers. Question of the week at thenakedscientist.com or if you've got a question, send it to the same address. Or you can debate them on our forum, which is at nakedscientist.com forward slash forum. You're listening to The Naked Scientist and now it's time for our kitchen science. This week is extra special. We sent Mira to the Natural History Museum to investigate a potentially cosmic finding sent in by one of our listeners. I was walking back home and I heard this uh, clatter about 10 yards away from where I was standing. And I thought, nothing of it. I walked back home, got in bed, and then I thought to myself, I know what that must be, because it can't be anything else. A meteorite. That was Colin from Ipswich, who sent in a sample of his meteorite to the Naked Scientists. So to find out if it really was from out of this world, I took it along to the Natural History Museum in London and analysed it with meteoritics researcher Dr Sarah Russell. To start with, Sarah told me what the definition of a meteorite is. A meteorite is any natural object that originates from beyond the Earth, 
that comes through the Earth's atmosphere to land on the ground. Before it lands on the ground, it's actually a meteor, and then it turns into a meteorite when it touches the ground. Okay, so we've got the sample just here now. What do we do first? Well, first I'm going to take it out of this little packet. It looks like an igneous rock. An igneous rock is a rock that's at some point in its history has been melted. This is very common for terrestrial rock, but there are some meteorite samples that can also be igneous in texture, so it doesn't exclude the possibility it's a meteorite. What should we do next? I've got a magnet here. Now, most meteorites contain some free iron in them, and that means that they're attracted to a magnet. So the first thing I'm going to do is to see if this sample is attracted to the magnet. OK, so it is actually sticking. Yes, it actually is, which surprises me, I have to say, because most igneous rocks are not magnetic. So there's hope yet? (laughs) There is hope yet. Um, For this kind of rock, I think it's more likely that instead of having iron in it, it's got a magnetic mineral in it, like magnetite. What's magnetite? Is that just in a lot of rocks then? It's in quite a lot of igneous rocks. It's an oxide of iron. We've now found out that there is some magnetism in it, though, so is the next stage to look look at it under the microscope? Yes, exactly. I've got a microscope here, so I'll put it underneath. The microscope's actually hooked up to a camera here, so I can actually see the sample up on the computer screen. What can we see here now, Sarah? That's not looking good. It's got some dark minerals here, which might be magnetite. Now, the texture of this, it looks slightly sugary, which kind of confirms my suspicion that it's an igneous rock. It's got a white crystal there. That's probably quartz. And that's quite an unfortunate result for a meteorite because quartz is a very common rock on Earth, but it's essentially absent in meteorites. Because to make quartz, you actually have to um, have a rock that's come from a a big planet that spent billions of years evolving and producing uh, different kinds of rocks. So it's not found in asteroids, and asteroids are the most common source of meteorites. So could the presence of quartz have burst Colin's bubble? Here's Sarah's verdict. I think this isn't a meteorite. I, yeah, I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but this, I don't think this is a meteorite. Even though the sample didn't turn out to be a meteorite, I asked Sarah what she would have done next if the rock had looked promising under the microscope. If we looked at the rock and we saw it was a mineralogy that was compatible with a type of meteorite, then the first thing that I would do is to get a very thin slice of it called a thin section. And we'll use the thin section to look in the electron microscope to look in detail at the composition of the minerals. There are some indicators. So, for example, in meteorites, if there is free iron, it's nearly always has nickel associated with it, and that's not true of a terrestrial rock. So that's one simple test that you can do once you've got this thin section of material. The other diagnostic test is oxygen isotopes, because the oxygen isotope composition of most extraterrestrial material is quite different to that of Earth. What we can do is we can do an oxygen isotope analysis, and that can tell us for sure whether it originated on the Earth or not. To show me what real meteorites look like, Sarah took out some samples from the museum's collection. I wanted to show you... This meteorite here, uh, which is a meteorite called a chondrite, and this is the most common, by far the most common kind of meteorite that is seen to fall. The first thing to notice, well, when you pick it up, it's actually denser than you would expect a terrestrial rock to be, and that's because it contains a lot of iron metal in it, and iron metal is denser than rock. Then also, if you look on the outside, you can see it's covered in this very thin, dark black layer and that's called a fusion crust, and that formed as the meteorite came through the atmosphere, the outside of it melted, and the fusion crust is really the best diagnostic thing to to say that something's a meteorite. 
What are the main types of meteorites that you get here at the Natural History Museum? This meteorite, called a chondrite, is so called because it contains, I don't know if you can see, it's got some rounded blobs in it. There's a round whitish blob there and some round dark blobs there. These are called chondrules. They're made of silicates. They actually formed as individual red-hot molten bits of rock that were floating around in the solar system. And then they solidified and, and eventually came into the meteorites. And there are two other main types. One's iron meteorites, which are made mostly of iron. And the other one is stony iron, which are complex mixtures of rocky material and iron material. So there are three types of meteorite out there to be discovered. Unfortunately, Collins' samples showed the presence of minerals formed only on Earth. But that doesn't need to stop us from keeping an eye out for meteorites in the future, especially as the source of these space rocks can range from debris dating back to before our solar system formed to fragments from the surfaces of other planets when those planets were hit by even bigger meteorites. The information they can provide us about our solar system is endless. That's it for Kitchen Science this week, but if you want to know more about meteorites, then go along to the Natural History Museum at the end of the month, as they're launching their new permanent mineral gallery, The Vault, on the 28th of November. Oh, how disappointing for Colin. That was Mira talking to avid listener Colin from Ipswich and Dr Sarah Russell from the Natural History Museum about meteorite spotting. Thank you, Kat. It's uh, Chris and uh, Kat and Helen. I'm here in Johannesburg, and I've got Case Reichstake with me, um, and he's from South Africa as well. He's a space scientist. Got a question for you from Bargaz in Kettering. He says, can we see black holes from the Earth, Case? Uh, yes, we can, but not directly. We can see the effect they have. Uh, basically, a black hole is a star that's died. It's collapsed. And <clears throat> unbeknownst to many people, uh, many stars, in fact, are double stars or binaries. And the, the dead star, the, the collapsed star, can form a black hole. The gravitational fields are intense. It sucks material from its companion star and forms what we call an accretion disk around it. That accretion disk emits X-rays, and we now know of many stars that are X-ray stars, and these are black holes. And very quickly, Ian says, the expanding universe is all based on redshift, stretching out of light. Is there any other independent evidence? Yes, uh, very briefly, um, supernova are standard candles, and they are very good distance markers, which are not dependent on redshift. Thank you very much. That's Case Reichstake. Thank you very much for joining us. He's from Cape Town normally, and he joined me in Johannesburg. Next week, we'll bring you highlights of what we've been up to here in South Africa, along with all the latest science news and your questions, because we are almost out of time. But what I have to do is to say a very big thank you to Case, also to Kevin Fong, Brian Schmidt, Jeff Marcy and Sarah Russell, who gave up their time this week for this week's show. And also thank you to Dave Cherry, Debbie Kramer and Paula Frey and Associates, who very kindly made it possible to, for us to be with you from South Africa today. We also need to thank our backroom team. That's Petra Minch, Diana O'Carroll, Ben Valsler and Mira Senthalingham. So if you have any questions this week about science, technology, medicine, the whole lot, Email chris at thenakedscientist.com. Good night. The Naked Scientists are sponsored by the Wellcome Trust, the EPSRC and UK Fast. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientists.com. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.